Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopone. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids... Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, And in today's podcast, well, last week we finally got around to talking about the Assyrians. And this week, we're talking about the Phoenicians. Finally, these extraordinary people who lived in the region of present-day Lebanon in the eastern Mediterranean. But in the early first millennium BC, they spread out across the Mediterranean and arguably helped create the first global Mediterranean in antiquity. Now, to talk about the Phoenician world, I was delighted to get on the podcast Dr. Carolina Lopez-Ruiz, a professor of classics at The Ohio State University. Carolina, she's just written a book all about the Phoenicians and their making of the Mediterranean. It was great to get her on the podcast. We talk about Phoenician colonization, how we should define Phoenician colonization in antiquity. We're going to be mentioning famous cities of antiquity such as Tyre, Carthage and Gadir, modern-day Cadiz. Cadiz being one of the oldest cities in Europe, a Phoenician settlement. It blows your mind, really, when you think about that. And then we're going to be focusing in on the Phoenician presence in southern Spain, in the ancient region of Tartessos. Why was this area of the Mediterranean, the other end of the Great Sea to where the Phoenicians originally came from, Why was this area so important to the Phoenicians? What is the archaeology revealing about it? What do we know about Phoenician interactions with Iron Age local populations? And how did they change over the many centuries that the Phoenicians were present in southern Spain? So without further ado, to talk all about the Phoenician world, here's Carolina. Carolina, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you, Tristan. It's my pleasure. Now, it's been long enough on the ancients. We're finally getting around to the Phoenicians, the awesome Phoenicians and their role in the ancient Mediterranean. I mean, Carolina, can we say it's the Phoenicians or these Levantine people who were the architects created the first global Mediterranean? Well, I would say yes, (laughs) to, to be very clear. I think obviously there were many actors in that scenario, but it's becoming more clear that they were definitely meeting those pan-Mediterranean networks very early in the Iron Age and that they were kind of followed closely by the Greeks and then they kind of helped knit this net on which other people you know, jumped into <laughs> and, and interacted with, that they were really crucial actors in connecting existing local and regional networks and creating this really broad roadmap, let's say, from east to the Atlantic, right, from the Levant to the Atlantic. So I would say that they shaped the Mediterranean in the early Iron Age in a crucial way, yeah. And if we really delve into the background of this topic, first of all, Carolina, I mean, 
the origins of the Phoenicians, as it were, in what area of the Mediterranean are we talking as from where the Phoenicians came from? Whom we call Phoenicians and the ancients called Phoenicians were basically people from the coast of modern Lebanon, but really spilling out of those modern frontiers, what would, today would be northern Israel and the coastal north Syria. So, but that kind of range of the Lebanon mountains and the sea coast. So they are basically the continuation of the Canaanite cultures of the Bronze Age that survived into the Iron Age with a great deal of continuity, actually, culturally, linguistically, even in terms of institutions and so on. And these coastal cities, Tyre, Byblos, Sidon, right, they are the ones who start this expansion, let's say, cultural, commercial expansion and colonial eventually. Yeah, so we're talking about that area of the Levant in particular. And I also realised this is perhaps a, a trickier question than it might originally seem, this who were the Phoenicians? Because, Carolina, please elaborate on this and my ignorance on this, but it's not as if it's a, a unified state of Phoenicia, is there? No, of course not. And that's very often brought up, right? Like, well, they never were a unified people and so on. But we're talking about the early first millennium. We're talking about city-states of the same sort that you had in the Levant at that time. Think of the Aramean kingdoms, the kingdoms in Israel, right? When they were independent kingdoms. It's a very typical type of political organization in the ancient world before the great empires of you know, Greece, Rome, and so on. And we had the same kind of framework in Greece itself, right? City-states, independent city-states, which were never a unified state or nation, let alone nation, right? Until they were kind of forcefully unified under Alexander the Great and then under the Romans. So we're really not talking about anything very different than when we talk about Greeks and Greek city-states. They were independent states, but unified culturally in terms of language, religion, and customs, as Herodotus said of the Greeks, I believe that that can be broadly applied to the Phoenicians, and that explains why we see so much homogeneity really across their networks and why others had a pretty easy time recognizing them and calling them <laughs> Phoenicians, right? So yes, that is what you said is exactly right, yet we can talk about a, at least a culture, yeah. And you mentioned Herodotus there and people talking about the Phoenicians. So it begs the question, what sorts of sources do we have when studying the Phoenicians? That's a, a problem <laughs> because, well, compared to other Mediterranean peoples, other Iron Age peoples who are not Greeks or Romans, we do have a lot of sources. But compared to Greeks and Romans, we have very few sources. So when we talk about Phoenicians, basically, in terms of emic sources in their own language, we are talking about inscriptions, inscriptions, and there are, I think, about 10,000 inscriptions. Most of them are little, tiny inscriptions and funerary, like very formulaic inscriptions from, you know, cemeteries and votive dedications. We have some royal, longer inscriptions, some inventories, some temple tariffs, so to speak, and some other interesting stuff. But mostly a lot of short documents, about 10,000. But still, they are not literature, right? They are inscriptions, which has a limitation as to the type of language and content that you convey in them. And then in later times, we have some authors that are writing in Greek about Phoenician matters, you know, from a Phoenician perspective, like Philo, Biblos or others, but some fragments of ancient historians. But mostly we have lost their literature for historical reasons mainly the destruction of Carthage and, <laughs> and then the kind of oblivion of the archives in Tyre and wherever else there were archives. So they don't have a manuscript tradition as the Greeks and Romans managed to preserve and put together. Or the Hebrews, right? You have the Hebrew Bible. So the Phoenicians don't have that. They're not alone. Most ancient Mediterranean peoples don't have that. The exception are really the classical and biblical traditions. So we are very limited in terms of discursive sources from themselves, which puts a big hamper on how much we can say about their own identity and, you know, perception of themselves. That's one thing in terms of writing stuff. Then we have tons of archaeology, which is great <laughs> because also that is a source that keeps growing. And so there's a very interesting dynamic there where, you know, you can keep going back to sources which are mostly external, Greek and Romans, talking about Phoenicians, some Near Eastern sources, Assyrian, you know, mentions of the Phoenician cities, 
biblical, some Egyptian, right? So you have a lot of external sources and then you have archaeology. So a lot of uh, recent and ongoing discoveries, epigraphy that also has the potential to grow because that is found archaeologically, right? Inscriptions. So there is a lot of potential to slowly reconstruct their culture using both internal emic sources and external ones and archaeological ones. If that gives you a very brief... <laughs> well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's a good brief to start with. And I'm sure we'll return, especially to the archaeology, when we focus in on certain places of the Mediterranean where we have very good evidence for the Phoenicians, uh, no doubt southern Spain in due course. But very quickly, first of all, if we talked about the, the origins of this expansion, this going forwards from the eastern Mediterranean, I mean, do we know why at the turn, at the start of the first millennium BC, we start seeing all this Phoenician expansion westwards? It's hard to tell for sure, but the general idea is that the main driving force was the search for metals, right? Metal resources, exploitation of metals, trading metals. That's a good guess because the places where they seem to be drawn to at first in Iberia, even the Atlantic coast of Iberia are, and then Sardinia and Cyprus, they are very rich in metals and particular areas that we can talk about that later about Spain that give access to very spectacular and rich uh, metal resources. So that's one safe guess as a main driver. Now, why at that point? Why or who is doing it exactly? Probably tires from literary sources and archaeological data you can gather that tire was behind the initiative. But why at that point? It's hard to know. It seems that they do it pretty in a pretty organized way because to really settle that far and so many points that they are interconnected, you are really supporting a long trade network that you can secure, right? <laughs> With routes that you can, you know, keep using for, in fact, for centuries. So it seems to be pretty well organized. And that is a different view that we've been arriving at than for decades. There was a view that it was an impulse kind of forced by the expansion of the Assyrians in the 8th century, later in the 8th century. But a lot of data has come out <laughs> from the field proving that the enterprise started earlier in the 9th century, probably in the mid to late 9th century. Well, for sure in the late 9th century, probably a little bit earlier. So that shifts the weight because really the Phoenician cities were not under oppression from Assyria at that point. So this changes the picture. And it means they are doing it as an enterprise to become wealthier, to become the gateway for the Levant of all of these resources in the Mediterranean, right? And to kind of dominate those markets. So that's kind of where we are at in a nutshell. <laughs> So if they have these motives, and let's say these settlers are going from these places you mentioned, like Sidon, Byblos, Aradus, Tyre, when they are making these settlements elsewhere in the Mediterranean, this idea of colonisation comes up. But colonisation today compared to, let's say, colonisation in antiquity, how should we define colonisation by the Phoenicians? Oof, that's a, such a hard topic too, yes, because it's very easy and kind of inevitable to impose our ideas of kind of Western European colonization onto ancient colonization. So obviously a lot of historians and, you know, archaeologists have been nuancing that and, you know, and making sure we don't do that. But in general, I mean, a big difference is that whether Tyre is behind it, which it seems to be in a more or less organized way and supporting these networks, it is not the sort of colonization where you would think there is like some kind of program of subdue a vast amount of territory and impose an administration, right? That is, you know, organized in that way, sort of as in modern or early modern empires. So it's, it's not a sort of imperialistic colonization, but more closer to the model of trading networks and perhaps more like what the Portuguese did in Southeast Asia or, you know, something like that. I mean, it's hard to find very good models for that. The Greek colonization is fairly close. Like there were mother cities, they maintained relations and kind of supported their colonies, right? And they had political alliances, religious affinities, or ethnic, kind of ethnic affinities as well. But they were fairly independent and fairly limited to a city and an area around it, the Hora, right? The, an agricultural area 
and therefore their survival also depended on their relations with native groups, which is crucial. And now we are much more emphasizing that aspect of these settlements. Even if we call them colonies for the sake of convenience, they survived only in, you know, so long as they could maintain, I guess, productive relations with their surrounding environment and groups, or sometimes probably conflictive ones. We don't know a lot about it, but they depended on that environment. It wasn't a full-blown, you know, colonization in that way. Yeah. And, well, then let's do some myth-busting of this, this colonization then, Carolina. These things that seem to come up, especially when reading your book. Now, first of all, fact or fiction, and I think you've kind of already mentioned this already, but I do want to mention it. These Phoenician settlements overseas, trading posts, or so much more? Now, trading posts are much more, on the other hand, because the ideas we have of the Phoenicians, there's been so much emphasis on, well, there were these coastal trading posts, very limited in their activity, except for, let's say, Carthage, who develops larger grip on the area and so on. But then that is kind of putting them in a different category as trading posts than what we use for Greek settlements, whom we call colonies, and where there's more emphasis on the political organization and the agricultural exploitation of the land and so on. So there is a myth, say, going with your prompt, of the Phoenicians being purely interested in coastal activities, therefore not really engaged much with the hinterland, let's say, and with agriculture and all that. And that is really a myth, because there is not a lot of difference between Greek and Phoenician coastal colonies, and there is quite a lot of proof of Phoenician exploitation of the land and advancement in agriculture. They were actually famous for as agricultural innovators, right? Like the agricultural treaties that the Romans used was by a Phoenician, Mago, right? It was translated into Latin, and Cato uh, used it, quotes it. Maybe he translated it, I'm not sure. So it's very interesting that we've developed this dichotomy of Greek and Roman settlement is more agricultural and Phoenician more commercial because that is a cliche that has all sorts of connotations of, you know, the um, people attached to the land, you know, they're more invested in their citizenry and there's some perception of higher social order or something or moral quality attached to that than the commercial entrepreneurs. They are greedy. They're just, you know, they're merchants. You know what I mean? So there's always more to... <laughs> to these uh, myths than just what you may think, yeah. I mean, do you think there was this desire to try and, well, to make Phoenician settlement, Phoenician colonization look different to Greek colonization, Greek settlements across the Mediterranean, therefore, by these ancient writers? Why, as you say, do these myths come about? Yeah, I don't know to what degree we can see this in the Greek and Roman sources, or it's more of a modern, you know, idea of the non-classical culture, the Semitic right. culture that it has to be as different as you can make it to the classical ones. Now, when we're talking about Roman propaganda, let's say, and Roman sources about the Phoenicians, yes, there you can totally see that emphasis. I mean, there is a cliche of, you know, of the Phoenician as greedy and more corrupt and more, you know, the seafaring people who are more interested in trade and more corrupt and so on, uh, versus the Roman characteristic of attachment to the land and so on. While really, I mean, they did do that in their propaganda. While really, I mean, the Romans became a maritime power as soon as they could. Right? <laughs> Apparently they kind of did um, industrial espionage or <laughs> on the Carthaginians by like copying boat making techniques from a shipwreck or that goes the, the idea or the legend if it was a legend or if it was real and then they became a maritime power they kicked the Carthaginians butts in the you know in the first Punic War already by naval battles and there you go so yeah there is a lot of it that is some of it at least goes back to antiquity as especially said in the Phoenicians the Carthaginians in particular as alter egos of the Romans while if you dig a bit deeper in Greek sources especially, there is a bit of everything. I mean, they're not particularly disparaged as anything very different from Greeks in those terms. I mean. Okay, fair enough. Well, you mentioned the First Punic War, Greeks and Romans and all that area of the Mediterranean. Just before really delving into the Western Mediterranean proper and some 
particular areas. Just as in more of an overview, you said you mentioned Iberia already and Carthage. But what sorts of areas were the Phoenicians making settlements in this period? They were all over the place. <laughs> Actually, some of the earliest settlements are in the far west before Carthage, which is on today's Tunisia, right? Before that, the earliest evidence of Phoenician settlement or intense activity, at least, comes from Huelva in, in southern Spain, which is around the Strait of Gibraltar, right? In the mouth of these rivers that are connected to this very rich mining area of El Rio Tinto. So that is where the earliest evidence for Phoenician activity has appeared in the last couple of decades. But this is kind of taking, you know, scholarship takes very long to, <laughs> to get the things, things out there. And then in Sardinia also, where there is a lot of great resources. So there is like a first phase in the late 9th century that is really reaching all the way out there. And then they settled in Gadir also, Cadiz, today's Cadiz, also at the end of the 9th century. That seems to correspond to Carthage, or maybe a little bit later, Carthage at the turn of the 9th century to the 8th. At the same time, on the coast of Morocco, on the Atlantic, there is Lixus and Mogador. So there are colonies there that go back pretty early. But soon enough, during the 8th century, so you already have these extremes, right? You have Kition in Cyprus, 9th century, a place in Crete, like Comos, which already has also indication of Phoenician presence. So then you have this east-west very broad line. And then it starts filling up, right? During the 8th century, you have colonies or settlements, bigger or smaller, all throughout the coast of southern Iberia, all throughout the coast of northern Africa up to Tunisia, all around the coast of Sardinia on the west coast, which is the more, um, the one with better harboring, right? And the Balearic Islands a bit later, 7th century, and then on Sicily as well. Sicily, pretty early on, on the western and northern part of the island, Motia, Lilibeum, Panormus, Palermo, right? Those go back to also this 8th century, maybe Motia a bit earlier, this stage. So there's several stages from very early contact to more settlements, but they're really kind of distributed all, all over the place, except where the Greeks <laughs> settle, which follow fairly closely. And it's almost like they distributed, right, these areas, the other part of Sicily, then the Greeks are on Libya, northern Libya, and of course, Asia Minor, the Black Sea. So different areas completely. Does that give you a more or less a... Absolutely, picture? yeah, it absolutely does. It's, it's really kind of, like, kind of like they're piecing out the Mediterranean together, weirdly. It's quite, it's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, in regards to all of that, Carolina, then, so if you were travelling from, let's say, Tyre, and then you go to Motia in Sicily or Carthage in North Africa, and then you go to Gadir, Cadiz in Spain, would you be able to see these similarities, maybe economic institutional links between these Phoenician settlements? I think so, yeah. Yeah, where there is enough evidence, you have very similar types of barriers, types of construction, cults, right, cultic places that are, in, you know, um, where there is worship of the same gods, Baal, Astart, and so on, with local variants, Baal Hamon in Carthage, or Melkart in, in Gadir, who is the main god of Tyre, but they're all in the same kind of spectrum of Phoenician religion. So you would see similar customs, you would see, you know, similar traits and specialized types of work that they did. And uh, of course, they would speak the same language <laughs> pretty much for centuries, which is well attested in inscriptions in all these places. So yeah, I think like Greeks going around the areas where there is Greek settlement, they have their networks and they would recognize each other and harbor each other and so on. But that's amazing, Caroline. So you could find a Temple of Melkart in Tyre, at the eastern edges of the Mediterranean, and then find another Temple of Melkart on the far western edge of the Mediterranean at Cadiz, at Cadiz. That's just astonishing to think. Yeah, and that is one of the, you know, big signs of this axis, right, from Tyre to Gadir that the scholars have, you know, talked about. There is an affinity that is linking the institutions and the cities through religious affinity, right, and a religious institution, such as the cult to Melkart, who is a god also attached to the city. I mean, his name probably means the king of the city. <laughs> so it's Baal as the king, as a city king and founder. So we have one of the few <laughs> foundation stories. It's about the foundation of Gadir, transmitted by Strabo. And he exactly mentions this, how the Phoenicians, according to tradition, followed an oracle of Melkart, well, of the god, right, being Melkart, 
And they had three attempts, failed attempts, because the sacrifices were negative until they found the right place and they put the city on one side of the island and the temple on the other side of the island. And um, that is just very indicative of, again, of this connection. And in a very similar scheme as what the Greeks did, there was a divine consultation and a divine sanctioning of the whole enterprise, right? I mean, absolutely. And I'm guessing, are there similarities, therefore, between that foundation story and their one of Carthage, too? Yeah, well, they are a bit different. Strabo's is less mythologized. Like, whatever his sources, he seems to be, you know, transmitting a, a more aseptic account. There is the oracle, but, I mean, people did consult oracles and did these things. So, whereas the foundation story of Carthage with the figure of Elisa and then, you know, then used by Virgil, I mean, it appears in several sources, and it seems to probably go back to some scheme that probably goes back to Phoenician culture, but it's harder to disentangle. And there is a link to the cult of whether ba- Melkart or Baal more generally, because it's uh, mentioned that when Elisha set out from Tyre, they collected a group of people from Cyprus, including a priest of uh, Baal. Well, they call it Zeus or you know Jupiter. Job and whatever the version. So there is a, co- a cultic component as well, but it's not attached to, let's say, an oracle and the foundation of a temple, if that makes sense. Okay, I mean, absolutely fair enough. Just before we like, really delve into Spain and Gadir and Tartessos, it's just kind of, it does seem those names from reading your book and all of that of Tyre, Carthage, and Gadir, of all the settlements, these three seem to be the big three in Phoenician studies, as it were. Yes, and according to all the traditions that we have, they are connected to Tyre. And that is why, again, one could say, well, where is the hard proof? We don't have Tyrian documents saying we sent a colony. But when different types of sources from different periods talk about Tyre as the founder of these cities, and then you actually find in the earliest stages, you find pottery that matches the types of pottery that experts <laughs> match to Tyrian pottery types at those periods exactly. And, you know, there's all these sorts of indications that they were linked to Tyre. And in fact, in later times, in more historical times, we have more sources from classical authors, of course, but, you know, they are historical sources talking about the relations they had, how the Carthaginians sent tribute to Tyre, some kind of, even if it was a symbolic thing, they maintained a relationship for centuries. For centuries, indeed, you say that symbolic thing, because by then, surely, Tyre has, it's passed its prime, it's met a decline, it's met figures like the terrible Alexander the Great, but people are still going there several centuries later. Yes, yes. Yeah, we cannot underestimate the importance of that symbolic historical link, right? What it meant for them. That was the founding city, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. History is going to Antarctica, and we're taking you with us. I'm going to be part of an incredible expedition to try and locate the missing endurance shipwreck, Ernest Shackleton's vessel that was crushed by the ice and sent to the depths during his attempt to cross the vast continent from side to side. Whether you're a Shackleton expert or this story is completely new to you, we've got something special for you. It starts on the 7th of February when we'll be dropping a captivating mini-series that tells the tale of just how Shackleton and his crew managed to survive months stranded in the coldest place on Earth with no shelter, no ship, and no contact with the outside world. How they made an escape that defies the very limits of human endurance through the planet's roughest oceans in a wooden rowing boat, walking across mountains and glaciers, all with not enough food or water. So, make sure you subscribe to Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you listen to your podcast to get the full story. Endurance 22, coming February 7th. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. further question on that because of course you know Carthage, Gadir, they are settlements you know they've come from Tyre but in time don't they create their own settlements as well I mean do we still see through the settlements that places like Carthage and Gadir make Siri elements of the Levant, Levantine elements in their own construction? Yes there is quite a lot of consistency across Phoenician settlements you know in again in kind of material terms in linguistic terms but for instance, there is a source that talks about the foundation or refoundation of a city near the Straits of Gibraltar called Carteia, and that the people from Gadir carried the relics of the god from Tyre to this place. A colleague of mine, Manuel Alvarez, has written about this. And this seems to refer to a later phase of, right, of the foundation of Gadir, where Gadir was a founding entity of herself, but still the symbolic element right, of religious relics connected to Tyre as well. That was involved in a foundation or refoundation of a minor settlement. So that is fascinating. And Carthage also, well, it started expanding exponentially at a certain point and surely reproducing you know, and producing more settlements in Iberia and in North Africa. And I'm presuming, therefore, from that, from those places, do we also, therefore, start to see an explosion, an eruption, maybe that's too strong a word, but of, of Phoenician art, shall we say, in all these corners of the ancient Mediterranean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go to Spanish museums or uh, museums in the Balearic Islands, when you get to the Punic period, let's say, 6th century, 5th century, even, late, even later, there is so much. And even though as time goes on, you know, you can obviously see variations in the artefacts, but there is a lot of continuity in the symbology. You have, let's say, terracotta figurines, you know, and amulets and decorated ostrich eggs and so on in all these areas of Phoenician and Phoenician slash Punic settlement that go on until Roman times in some places, until the Romans come in and, you know, and things start changing uh, more. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's therefore, we've been talking quite broadly, I appreciate we're talking about hundreds of years of history. So let's delve in, therefore, to a particular region as a case study and delve into the detail of various aspects of it. Southern Spain, Tartessos. Carolina, what is Tartessos, first of all? Good question. (laughs) If somebody attended the recent Congress on Tartessos that happened in Spain in November, you think, how is it possible that we still cannot really agree on what is Tartessos? And um, that is because if we have relatively scarce sources for the Phoenicians, right, or at least from themselves, we have way fewer for Tartessos. So basically what we call Tartessos is what the Greeks called Tartessos, again, going with their nomenclature, which is a region in southwestern Iberia, roughly equivalent to the Betica of Roman times, the Guadalquivir Valley, 
right? And surrounding areas. So Andalusia, but kind of Western Andalusia, even mapping on some areas of Southern Portugal and Extremadura, even to the North. Anyway, so you can redefine it much more specifically than saying it's an area in Southern Spain and a culture that kind of flourished around the time when the Phoenicians arrived there. So from the 8th century, especially 8th and 7th centuries, you have a archaeological remains of local groups that develop this so-called orientalizing culture, for the lack of a better term. That is a local culture that has absorbed and developed through the adaptation of Levantine and especially Phoenician elements, you know, broadly construed. I mean, there are things that you can kind of see similarities to or influences from Sardinia or from Cyprus, but overall Levantine. So it's the Tartessians are kind of to put it very simply, kind of like the Truscans of ancient Spain, if you want to. The culture is a bit less grand. We don't have this huge necropolis, but we do have necropolis. They also have tumuli, where local leaders were buried with luxury items, many coming from the Phoenicians, other local adaptations of stuff. So there is a local culture that gets richer, we think, via the interaction with these Phoenicians, probably acting as middlemen in the whole metal business and trade in general. And these groups use this interaction to create an aesthetic and a visual material culture that makes them more visible and makes them look more powerful, right? Vis-a-vis their neighbors as well. So, you know, it's the kind of local context of where you have this sort of interaction. Now, the question is whether Tartessos was ever sort of politically unified or not. Maybe not. Maybe we're talking about separate groups. Maybe there was some sort of unification under one king or one place, as Herodotus seems to imply when he talks about this king of the Tartessians called Argantonios, who was legendary for having lived very, very, very long in the 6th century. So, I mean, there, we have classical sources who talk about this as this Tartessos as an area and Tartessians as a culture or as an ethnic group. That's what they talk about. Then mostly we reconstruct it from archaeology and then how you map the archaeology onto the written sources. There is a, you know, archaeologists will say one thing and historians will say a different thing and we're trying to meet somewhere in the middle. Well, keeping on the archaeology then, I mean, it seems from what you've written down and everything that the Phoenician contacts, Phoenician links with this part of the Mediterranean, they seem to even predate the colonies, the settlements themselves? Well, yeah. So as I mentioned before, in this area in Huelva, the findings predate the colonization of the settlement of G- in Gadir. And yet, whatever was happening in Huelva, the Phoenicians did not settle there in a colony, let's say. They stayed in Gadir where they built a city, right? And we have remains there of urbanized foundations in the late 9th century. So materials go back even to the 10th century, if I'm not, I mean, pottery experts, you know, are fine-tuning all this, but what I gather <laughs> is that there is material evidence of commerce and interaction going back even to the 10th century, even up the coast of Portugal. So what's happening is that they have been in touch with these local groups earlier. At some point, those contacts and those early relations lead to a situation where the Phoenicians feel secure enough to settle a colony, which they do in Gadir, which is not, you know, as far as Huelva, but they keep those channels, they have access to those channels, right? And they are clearly active in the area of Huelva as well. We have even Phoenician burials in some areas nearby and so on. So it's very, very interesting. And I think archaeology, you know, is going to keep producing more data and uh, hopefully we can piece this picture together. Yeah. Well, Carolina, it's so interesting because I did a project recently all about late Iron Age Britain and looking at settlements and the trade with the Roman Empire at that time and how local elites brought in objects from the Roman Empire, which they're seen as, as status goods. Could we be seeing a similar thing in Tartessos in that area with local Iron Age elites bringing in Phoenician material to show off their wealth, to show off their power? Yeah, I think definitely that's what we seem to have. The mystery sort of is what was the configuration of these people, social configuration, cultural configuration, because before this period, there is so much fewer 
archaeological right trace of them. For instance, there is like no burials. What did they do with their dead? They, it's not like these people appear all of a sudden and there was nobody there before, because all of a sudden you have this flourishing culture, even if you can trace it mostly through burials, because that's their, you know, their housing or whatever were, was not of that, the sort that would survive. Though in some places you start seeing some public buildings and eventually some walled settlements and so on. But in any case, what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, that it's almost like if you pour paint on an invisible man, you know what I mean? <laughs> like all of a sudden you have the shape of it. I believe that they were there. I mean, that these were societies that were complex enough and organized enough that they could handle, you know, deal with the Phoenicians in a way that they benefited as well, right? And that that made them transform their culture in a way that they became more visible, more ostentatious, and so on, which is a move that you do also to distinguish yourself from others around you who are not doing that. So I think that's definitely what's going on. Now, other scholars, there's a line of scholars who say, no, there was basically almost nobody there. And what you see are actually Phoenicians kind of settling. And But I mean, honestly, there's a lot of prehistoric archaeologists who have been tracing these cultures from the Bronze Age, like the European Atlantic Bronze Age, and there are continuities in pottery and so on. So I think they were there. And what's happening is what you see, in a sense, in Greece. You see this in, in central Italy. You know, nobody will say there were no Greek speakers in Greece just because the Dark Ages, right? <laughs> there's no writing. I mean, there's some material stuff, but eh. no, we know that there were because you, we have more sources and we have Mycenaean texts and then we have Greek texts. So you kind of construct what's in the middle. But if you think about Greece in the geometric period, the material culture is you know, could be anything. I mean, it's not very rich and, uh, you know, generally speaking. And it changes a lot when they come into contact with the broader Mediterranean in the archaic period. It changes dramatically. So the same happens in these other areas. It's just we know less about these local groups, basically. These local groups. Well, we will go back to this as we continue the chronological story of Tartessos and the Phoenicians. I mean, you did mention earlier Gadir and when the settlement is founded. Now, has archaeology revealed much about the layouts, the urban structure, the urban layout of Gadir during its early years, you know, the first Phoenician settlement, as it were? As a matter of fact, they have found... Hey! Yes, <laughs> finally! <laughs> this is sort of recent as archaeological, you know, and scholarly data moves so slowly. It's relatively recent, last decade, let's say. It's barely coming out, like making it into the narrative. But there is this site in the center of the city of, of Cadiz called the Teatro Comico, like comic theater. And this was, let's say, an emergency excavation done in a plot in the middle of the city where they were going to rebuild this theater. So the archaeologists were able to dig a whole block, right? And it was the first time they could get to the bottom of Phoenician Gadir, and the first time that they hit 9th century levels, late 9th century and early 8th century levels, therefore the very beginning of Gadir. Therefore proving that, yes, the, you know, actually they were there as early and from the, fairly, from the beginning, they created a pretty well-organized urban grid. This is, again, this is a few houses. I don't remember how many, but it's, you know, sort of a half a block here, half a block there, a street in the middle. And you have uh, well-built houses with Phoenician, typically Levantine or Phoenician techniques with a base like a stone foundation and um, clay walls filled with rubble. It's, you know, I'm not <laughs> much into the technique. It's called pier and rubble technique, it's, which is very typically Phoenician. Some of these houses had ovens inside, like a full kiln that were exact uh, replicas, let's say, of the ovens found in Phoenicia and the streets were paved like earth-beaten, right? Paved. They found tracks of animals, like cow tracks, even traces of a cat track. <laughs> very, fine. very weird. Weird stuff. And very importantly, they found bullae, like clay stamps, clay seals, right? Used for papyri inside an oven in one of these houses. And these clay seals have imprint. They have the traces of the papyrus that was burnt Right, so they were attached to the papyrus, and also some of them have iconography, right, because they are seals. So it's amazing to think that, yeah, there were people 
using papyrus scrolls in Gadir, and these clay seals come from the Levant. They analyze the clay and they realize it's not local dirt, and the iconography is uh, Phoenician, Egyptianizing, and so on. So it's just very, it was like a little window, but that brought out so much of that early foundation that it was well organized, it was full fledged Phoenician. Uh, of course, very soon they would incorporate local people and families would become mixed and all that. I'm not denying that, but it is a Phoenician foundation. And there is even their corroboration that, yes, they had literature and scrolls were circulating, right? It's just we don't have them, unfortunately. Well, let's continue the story from there then, you know, over the next century or couple of centuries or so, Carolina, because Phoenician influence, literature, settlements, cohabitation with the local people, it seems to go to a new level, explode over the following centuries in the Tartessos area. Yeah, well, you have uh, a lot more settlements, again, all along the coast, but also during the 7th century, you have increasing archaeological evidence, again, mostly from burials, but then you have some places that have yielded, like uh, sanctuaries. There's a few, especially in Seville, well, just outside Seville, the Carambolo sanctuary is pretty spectacular. Well, now it is not because it has been buried under cement, <laughs> but <laughs> it was well excavated and there's uh, digital reconstructions and they found a statuette of Ashtar, most likely connected to the place, dedicated to Ashtar. So in these places, what you see is, first of all, you see a clear Phoenician hand that is kind of the construction techniques. A lot of artifacts are Phoenician or Phoenician-like, but then you have clearly an input of a local culture as well. And that is local pottery or decoration that is kind of Levantine, but kind of different. So what you would expect of a context of hybrid practices, right? And cultural hybridity going on. But yeah, and that happens all around. And then this Levantine influence or Phoenician influence goes on later on. Like even in these kind of developments of local culture that is very um, inflected by Phoenician culture goes on like and appears like in Extremadura, right? In the 5th and 4th century buildings like Anchorroano and El Turuñuelo, like these are amazing archaeological sites, which are later and they are really in the periphery, way in the hinterland of what would be the core of Tartessos in the Guadalquivir area that I mentioned. So what's happening? Some people say, well, this is some local development of Iberian stock, but others the excavators of the site, my colleague Sebastián Celestino and Esther Rodríguez say, well, we should mention it as uh, Tartesic because it really shares the same cultural features, material culture and so on. So why not think that beyond archaic period, there is a continuation of Tartesic culture? But again, these are all areas still for debate. <laughs> And I'm guessing one such area, we can't talk about the Phoenicians and not mention the next two words. Carolina, the Phoenician alphabet. Now, how influential do we think the Phoenician alphabet is in this area of the ancient Mediterranean? Yeah, one of my favorite topics. <laughs> well, the Phoenician alphabet is really a remarkable kind of marker of this cultural process, right? Because it really seems to be really a very important part of the transformation of these different societies. So not everybody adopts the alphabet, but those who do are those who are more in contact with Phoenicians maybe, or who develop these orientalizing cultures, let's say, that really flourished. So you have in the Levant, the Israelites, right, and the Arameans adopt the Phoenician alphabet after the 10th century, and they create their own version, right? The Greeks adopted in the 8th century, early to mid-8th century, and then the Etruscans adopted, though they probably adopted through the Greeks, but it's basically the same alphabet, but in their own version. And then the Tartessians also adopted, and that's it. Nobody else that we know does this. So in the case of Tartessos, it appears around the 7th century, so a bit later. And it is a weird version, though. I mean, it's kind of... Experts, I mean, will agree that there is a, an element of the Phoenician alphabet, but it also they create syllabic signs. Some signs are kind of similar to the Cypriot syllabary signs. It's a very particular kind of thing, but they adopt writing as part of this wave. So this is all part of this wave of alphabetic writing and that is especially picked up 
by the same culture that really emerged from Greece, Etruria, Iberia as perhaps the more orientalizing and sophisticated ones. Whereas in North Africa, there are no local adaptations. There is the Phoenician alphabet and it appears everywhere, but there is no local separate script that develops from it, which is interesting, or neither in Sardinia at this point. So it doesn't happen everywhere. And I think that is significant and something to work with as well. Like why do these adaptations happen in one place and not the other? It surely has to have to do with local conditions, right? And local groups. Well, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, is this evidence, as you say, if you have evidence in Spain of this sort of interaction with the locals, but not in North Africa, does this really emphasise how the effect of Phoenician settlements on the local populations, it really does differ depending on where you go in the ancient Mediterranean? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. Yeah, it differs a lot and it produces different adaptations and, and innovations in different areas. So exactly, you... I mean, the fact that I'm emphasizing this thread of Phoenician cultural influence and technological influence doesn't mean we are not also emphasizing, on the contrary, we are the local agency in that. And that is evident in how different the developments are in each area, right, in each type of adaptation. So North Africa is a whole question mark because there is such a Phoenician presence and yet, yeah, the local side of this interaction is very obscure and it's possible that, in general, the societies there were not of the type that, you know, would make use of that kind of transformation of themselves, or they were not organized in such a way that that was useful or whatever, they, or they were not interested. But also there is the fact that so much fewer archaeology has been done looking at those periods, right, in North African countries. I mean, that is a big problem as well. So we have to try to balance those factors in I mean, absolutely fair enough. Well, a couple more questions before we start wrapping up, Carolina. This has been amazing so far, but my eyes were drawn whilst reading to something called the Warrior Steely. Now, Carolina, what are these? Oh my God. I wish my colleague Sebastian Celestino was here because he is one of the biggest experts on this stella. I always, you know, check in with him. Like, uh, But so there are these stellae stones, little megaliths, uh, you know, let's call them stellae, you know, elongated, pretty rough, some of them, others a bit more polished. This sort of stone thing, they appear all over the Tartessic area, but the broad, tar- I mean, talking about Extremadura as well, southern Spain, some randomly in other places. And they are very difficult to date because they are all found, most of them found out of context or out of their initial context. They are reused like one of them is reused in the Canchorroano building, which is, uh, you know, much later, 6th century, 5th century. So it's like, I mean, the stage in which is reused is the, one of the later ones. So we know they're earlier than, in the view of Sebastian and many scholars, they are a remnant or an inheritance of the Bronze Age culture of these peoples, whether we call them Tartessic or pre-Tartessic or whatever they are, but they are in the same region and they have iconography that evolves as well. I mean, usually showing weapons and then at some point showing a horned, like a male figure with horns and a sword. And then some of them show items that seem to reflect this orientalizing, right? Um, new culture like combs and mirrors, which are typically luxury items made of metals or ivory and things like that, chariots. So. It's very interesting if you, you know, there is a sort of evolution or chronology that is reconstructed from the iconography, so it's very tentative, but if that pans out, there is a sort of incorporation of Near Eastern elements on the previous warrior stelae, some of which have iconography and others don't, but we don't know what they were used for. Were they, if they were grave markers, there is no trace of the graves. <laughs> they were not found in situ anyway. Are there spaced like territory markers? Are they cenotaphs? I mean, <laughs> there's all sorts of theories, but they seem to reflect the fact that there were groups that had elites that represented their power or their territory or their influence with these stone monuments with certain coherence across a vast territory. So that's why they are usually featured as a Tartessic type of art. <laughs> Complicated. History. 
Complicated, complicated, as you say. I mean, but mysteries still abound indeed. I mean, from what we've been talking about, Carolina, does it really seem, say, as we even move on, like to the 6th century, that Tartessos, this has become a real, a jewel in the Tyrian maritime commerce world. It's become this prime place because it seems to be so wealthy. Well, at that point, by the 6th century, it appears in Greek sources, like Hecate, uh, yeah, Hecateos, even in the Gerianeida, I mean, in Epic, and then later in Herodotus, making reference to the 6th century, right? So he's looking back to the 6th century and the time of the Persian expansion. So by the 6th century, Tartessos seems to be known by the Greeks as a wealthy people's even state, kingdom, you know, that's how they call it characterized by these wealthy metals and so on. So you can think that, yeah, that reflects what we see on the ground a little bit of that local side and close collaboration with the Phoenician realm, which is very potent at that point. And then by that time, things start changing, like by the turn of the century, 500 or so, that's when Carthage really uh, picks up, right? Takes off as a regional power and seems to take over those Western networks that before were more like independent Phoenician networks of the earlier Tyrian right, the tradition, let's say. So what happens between the 6th century, as you said, Tartessus was doing great and was even known far in the East and by the Phocians and so on. What happens between then and the rise of Carthage? When Carthage draws the first treaties with Rome in 509, according to our sources, which is Exactly, kind of marking that inflection point. The Romans know they have to deal with the Carthaginians <laughs> if they want to have any, say, in Central Mediterranean trade. So Carthage is kind of taking over. So there are different theories, but I can't get into it if you want or not. But there is something going on that... Yeah, uh, go for it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that has led scholars to talk about the crisis of the 6th century. So sometime in the second part of the 6th century, after this King Argantonius that... Herodotus mentions has died <laughs> or whatever happened, there is a point there where there seems to be disruption like on the ground. Let's say archaeologists say that so many settlements get abandoned, you stop finding the kind of wealth that you found before, there are discontinuities. And then, you know, maybe some part of it has to do with Tyre's own situation, like maybe Tyre just kind of lost grip of these networks because at that point it became under the Babylonian grip and then later Persian, but the Babylonians may have had something to do with it. Maybe there was something else that happened. There may be some indication of a natural disaster, but I leave that to other colleagues. That would be really cool if they could track that, that there may have uh, something may have happened that really affected the harbors and the, you know, the logistics for some time, maybe a combination of things. And then Carthage either taking advantage of that configuration of things or in part creating it, maybe. The point is that at the end of the 6th century, this whole world changes a lot because, yeah, the Western Mediterranean seems to become more isolated from the East, more dominated by Carthage, and at the same time, the, the you know Carthage and Rome really get into a collision course there that will you know, explode in the third century with the Punic Wars. There. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely summarised right there, Carolina. I mean, I've got a couple of questions that I'm dying to ask now, and that's in regards to, you mentioned Carthage. Of course, we're talking about the Western Mediterranean and these settlements in southern Spain in Tartessos. But do we have evidence for even further exploration, even further travel from Phoenicians, by Phoenicians? Oh, yeah, that is one of the few areas where we have some sources from, you know, Greek and Roman sources that talk about this periploi, these explorations from the 6th century, the 5th century. I mean, there are different mentions of, of various periploi. One of these explorations has its own textual tradition, the Hanno, the expedition by Hanno, where there is a, a Greek text, maybe, I mean, in theory, based on a Phoenician text, according to what the text itself says. It says that it was that the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians set this up in a temple, in the temple doors at Carthage. And, but whatever the case, this is, for instance, one exploration where a Carthaginian contingent surrounded part of Africa down to somewhere in tropical, you know, 
somewhere around the equator line, Congo or something like that. I don't know. We don't know for sure. But it's very interesting. And then there are other mentions. The most famous one, this idea, this notice that the Phoenicians surrounded Africa. And this would have happened under an Egyptian pharaoh's Neho, like commission. And probably, I have to check that, but I think in the 5th century as well, maybe 6th century. Yeah, anyway, the circumnavigation of Africa. And again, you know, we don't have a lot to go on. Some of these are just random mentions, and there are several of them, but we know the Greeks were doing the same. They had traditions of periploi from Massalia, and, you know, there are several of them. And this is a kind of genre that we think that reflects real explorations and that is very interesting because probably the Phoenicians would not want to give away a lot of information of what they were doing, right, to the Greeks or vice versa, which might explain why there's not a lot of details of what they did, the same way that in early modern times, Portuguese and the Spaniard and the British or whatever would, you know, try to keep, a, <laughs> keep the trade routes more or less to themselves and so on. So yeah, they did get around. They were very good navigators and possibly circumnavigated Africa and very likely went all the way up to the British islands. I mean, for trade, up and down the Atlantic coast, for sure. How up? We cannot know, but definitely they were going up and down the coast of Portugal for sure, possibly farther up. I just find it fascinating, perhaps that if you had these Phoenician explorers, you know, one might, you know, landing in somewhere like the Canary Islands and finding what they found there or then perhaps one on Orkney or the Channel Islands. But it's so interesting to think what they would have found at those places and how it was then reported in turn. Yeah, and there's, it's weird because, well, the Canary Islands, there's a huge question mark there as to when the first human settlement starts there and I don't want to get in like opinions vary so much that you wonder how is it possible but I don't think there is trace of Phoenicians there but people who know about navigation says that the crossing the Straits of Gibraltar to begin with is very dangerous to do in those ancient boats because of the currents you need to know very well what you're doing when you're doing it know the currents very well and apparently it's you know very complicated and dangerous because once if you do it in the wrong moment or you can be taken out by the current all the way up to Galicia or whatever or all the way down to yeah maybe to the Canary Islands I mean you can end up who knows where <laughs> so so yeah they knew what they were doing and I'm sure many of them got lost too <laughs> Carolina, this has been an absolutely amazing chat. And if there are any other questions or any other things you want to mention, please do right now. I mean, my last question to you is, and I think it's pretty self-explanatory because of what we've all been talking about, but it's really stressed, doesn't it, how important it is to include the Phoenicians when studying the ancient history of the Mediterranean and the people of the ancient Mediterranean. It's not just the Greeks and the Romans going to all of these places and more. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's like we're, we're missing a whole dimension of ancient Mediterranean history if we don't take them into account. And in fact, the Romans and the Greeks took them into account a lot. And that's why we have sources about them. And not only as rivals and enemies, as in the case of the Romans, is most famously, but as cultural you know, agents, as inventors, as even as uh, models for political organization, like Aristotle talks about the constitution of Carthage and so on. They are in Homer, they are in Herod, they are everywhere. So if the Greeks and Romans really engaged with them because they were part of the same world, you know, imagine how much we were missing. But also because I think by trying to reconstruct more and more of this Phoenician world, we also gain uh, access in part to these other peoples of the Iron Age, right, that, whom we know even less <laughs> about, that were interacting with Phoenicians and with Greeks and with others, right? But, you know, we can learn more about the Sardinians and the Tartessians and peoples from North Africa and so on. So they are really kind of a bridge into a whole Iron Age Mediterranean that has still a lot to yield and really gives us a, you know, a much more round knowledge of the ancient world than just the classical sources do. Well, it therefore sounds very exciting for the future of this field then, Carolina. Last and certainly not least, your book on this topic just released, it is called... Phoenicians and the Making of the Mediterranean. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Carolina, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Twistan. It has been my pleasure. Well, there you go. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast with Dr. Carolina Lopez-Ruiz, 
all about the Phoenician world with a particular focus on the Phoenician presence in southern Spain. If you enjoyed the pod, then why not consider having a look at Carolina's new book, Phoenicians and the Making of the Mediterranean. Now, whilst we're on the topic of books, I will also highlight my new book. If you find the career of Alexander the Great extraordinary, but want to know why the events that followed Alexander, that followed his death, are even more extraordinary, this Game of Thrones meets Lord of the Rings, but non-fiction, as one recent reviewer described it, then why not have a look at that book, Alexander's Successors at War, The Perdicus Years. We'll put a link to that in the description below too. Now, that's enough from me about books. If you want more Ancients content, then you know what to do. If ancient history is literally now bursting from your body, which is what we want, of course, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via another link in the description below. And finally, last but certainly not least, if you'd be very kind to leave us a nice rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, that would be greatly appreciated. See you on Sunday. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.